All right, open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 7. Now, I'm going to make this complex for you because I've got two passages to look up, so hopefully you can handle this. Romans 7, Galatians 3, okay? So kind of keep your thumb in Romans 7 and then get over to Galatians 3, and we'll get there in just a second. Romans 7, Galatians chapter 3. For those of you with... Uh, iPads or iPhones, I guess this is just really going to blow your mind. I mean, to be able to have two passages open at once. I think if there was ever two messages that needed to be preached on top of one another, it'd be last week's and this week's. And I don't know if you were here last week, but in essence, let me just synthesize what I said. You don't have to obey the law. Now, I left that sort of like a, an intentional cliffhanger. It should have stung a little bit and that's on purpose. We, we told you why. We told you that Paul says we're dead to the law. We are released from the law. The law is no longer binding. And the reason, his argument is, that the law isn't our cure. Because the law can't produce righteousness. And God's standard is perfection and righteousness. You need to be holy as he is holy. Law can't do that in sinners. It just can't do that. And so Paul is talking about the gospel, and as he's working through the grace of God, he gets to this issue of law, and where is its place in, in the church's life. In fact, Paul says we're freed from the law so that, now here's the kicker, so that we can bear good fruit. What comes out of, out of Christians who don't have to do things but have been so transformed that we want to love God, good fruit comes out, fruit that God looks at and says, I, I accept that, that's an honorable gift. So he uses this phrase to describe it. He calls it serving in the new way of the spirit. We, we talked about love being the definition of what that phrase means, that when you love God, heart, soul, mind, and strength, you don't think about pleasing God by legalism and law. You just love God, right? And those things are the works, the good fruit that Paul's talking about. Now, you might have left here last week confused, potentially, or cranky. I don't know. Um, <laughs> And I'm okay with either one because I think God in his intention and, and our pace, to be honest with you, has, has built in uh, to our experience a little bit of what I would call theological cliffhangers. Like, because you should be thinking. You should leave here going, well, if that is true, then what does that mean about this? And what do I do about that? And, and, and you should feel somewhat of a little bit of tension, not too much tension. I hope you can sleep at night, but, but at least enough tension to want the questions answered. Because it sounds a little bit, when I said the week before that, you, that I'm just suggesting don't fight sin, present yourselves to God, and last week you don't have to obey the law, that we're getting pretty loose with this stuff, and so, so maybe this is going to be a problem. And it sounds a little bit like the instructions of God are a bad thing, and we should spend most of our energies trying to avoid them, and that's not what we said. So if there's a tension in you, you're in good company because Paul feels the tension. That's what we're going to deal with in, in Romans chapter 7. But before we do, I want to kind of tell you that I think Paul's a, a well-experienced man when it comes to tension when he's teaching God's grace. Um, in the chronological order of Paul's writings, uh, Romans is, I, I think, sixth. Galatians ends up being, as most people think, the one before Romans. If you've ever read Galatians or studied it, you understand that Paul is dealing fundamentally with the same subject that we're dealing with right now. He's talking about Grace versus legalism or law. Specifically, he's addressing some people who've infiltrated the church called Judaizers who suggest that Jesus alone, by faith alone, 
Through grace alone isn't the thing that settles it between you and God. You need to add some work. And the work that the Judaizers are suggesting is circumcision. I mean, Jesus is good and all. Trust in Jesus. Have faith in Christ, but you need to do something else. So out of probably all of Paul's writings, he is more harsh and aggressive with this subject than all other subjects. In fact, if, if, I, I think Paul's an intense, driven kind of type A guy. And I think he controls himself, but he's really upset with somebody coming in suggesting that there's more than one way. Like there's options to get to Jesus. And so he writes in, in chapter 3 of Galatians kind of a thought. We're going to use it as a springboard to get into chapter 7 in our discussion here. But ultimately, Paul understands this tension that we're dealing with. Here's what he says in verse 1 of Galatians 3. Oh, foolish Galatians. Now, here, here is the, the translation of the word foolish. It means lacking intelligence. The vernacular for us today is stupid, okay? Now, if you're not an S word using person, I, I apologize, but that's what it means. Oh, stupid Galatians, he says, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. So let me ask you this question. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, you're now trying to be perfected by the flesh? That's Paul's observations of someone suggesting that faith alone in Christ alone wasn't enough, that you needed to add some kind of external work. Okay, now skip down to verse 10. Paul says, for all who rely on the works of the law are under a what? Curse. For it's written, cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. I want you to notice just real quickly, that verse suggests not only justification, but sanctification. And there's only one way to be right with God and only one way to live right with God. They're both by faith in Jesus, according to Paul. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Paul's just suggesting if you choose that as an option, you better be bulletproof. You better be perfect, okay? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. This, in essence, is Paul's argument. Or this is Paul's passion against anyone suggesting that something other than grace alone is how we stand with Christ. Okay, so I think people have accused Paul for a long period of time of not having a right perspective on the law. I think some could say that he has suggested that the law is wrong or that it's sin. He's, he's heard that before. He's no stranger to accusations because when he's presenting grace, you've got to understand something. Grace is not common. It doesn't work that way with us personally, and, and there is only one relationship with God ever described by grace alone. It's Orthodox Christianity, and I understand, and Paul understands, and maybe you understand that it blows up religion. It blows it up. And so Paul has dealt with a lot of arrows being thrown his way when he's talking about the law as a curse. Or you're dead to the law. Or you're released from the law. The law is no longer binding. So if you're feeling a growing tension, church person, that we're sliding away from our doctrine cracker a little bit and we're losing our mind when it comes to what God has said and what he's commanded his church to do, trust me, you're in good company. Because Paul's going to deal with it here in chapter 7. So I want to read it a little bit in context. So we're going to back up to verse 1 of chapter 7. I'm not going to read all of it. But just, just so we're getting in the rhythm of what Paul says. 
And understand here that Paul assumes either that the question will be asked because of how he's gone after the law, or he's actually had somebody come after him. So here's what he says in verse 1 of chapter 7. Or do you not know, brothers, from speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? So again, Paul was using that that absolute statement to say the law no longer is binding because we have now been identified with Christ and his death, okay? So here's what he says in verse um, four. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who's been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear good fruit for God. For why we are living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law will work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not the old way of the written code. Now, here's the assumptions that Paul makes after he said some really scandalous things here. What shall we say then, verse 7? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would not have known what it was to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. So the law is holy, the commandment is holy, and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I, above the flesh, Sold under sin. Let's pray together. <clears throat> These are your words, God, and uh, we understand your spirit is the ultimate teacher, so we're asking for his presence here. Captivate our attention, God, to keep out the distractions, help us focus on this truth, help us uh, get to the end of it so that we can celebrate Christ and what he's done for us, I pray. Amen. <laughs> I don't know if you've heard of this uh, kind of world-renowned psychiatrist. I know it seems odd to mention a psychiatrist because most of the times these guys don't have a clue, but there was a world-renowned psychiatrist called Carl Mellinger. And uh, in 1973, he wrote a book, interesting title, What Became of Sin? Now, we'd think that, uh, in that in that kind of line of work, sin wouldn't be a discussion, but he suggests that we have twisted or lost the definition of sin. We have turned it from a transgression against God into a transgression against men. Call it crime. We've turned sin into a symptom rather than something that's inside of every one of us. And so um, we have, because of this new definition of sin, we understand that the problem is somebody else's problem. It's outside of us. The problem's not internal. So if I can call sin a crime, it's against men. If I can call it a symptom, it's outside, then I don't have to deal with the issue. And biblically, I don't have to deal with what the Bible says. But we understand what we've learned so far in this study, that sin is a transgression not against men, although men experience it. It's fundamentally a transgression against God. And the problem is not outside, it's inside, right? Our lesson today is fundamentally a discussion about our responsibility. That's what we're going to look at today. 
and how God's law is good. That's why Paul can say it's good, it's righteous, and it's holy because it proves us as sinners in need of a Savior. Okay, so if you want the picture of what Paul's trying to do here, he is trying to lean into law so much that every person who's ever lived says, I need help, okay? I can't do it. And that's the essence of this passage that we're going to look at. So if you want a title to this message, we can just call it the law is good. And here's why. I'm going to give you four reasons, okay? The first one, the first reason why the law is good is because it reveals sin. Verse 7, what then shall we say? That the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would have not known sin. For I would have not known what it was to covet if the law did not say, you shall not covet. Paul jumps right to the chase when he deals with the question, okay, you've heard me talk about being released and free from the law. It's no longer binding. So therefore is the law the problem. And he says right off the bat, and there's no way. It's absurd to think it. Because it came from God, it can't be evil. See, Paul doesn't blame his sin on the law. The, the law is not the problem. He gives the law the credit for exposing him as a sinner. That's what the law does. It exposes us. It, it reveals us. And the illustration that he uses is the illustration, personally, of coveting. Now, very, very seldom do you hear preachers confess their sins out loud and say, here's my struggle. Well, Paul's doing it for us right here, and he talks about coveting. Coveting is a very um, acceptable way to talk about lust. Okay, coveting is simply yearning to possess something or someone else. It's the word lust that Paul's saying. He says, I, I wouldn't know that my problem was internal if God didn't say you should not want these things. Paul was convinced that as long as he didn't take those things, he was okay. And yet God said, no, it's, it's not that you don't touch. And it's not that you don't take. It's that you want you get my point? And that's Paul's illustration when it comes to how the law reveals. And you got to just put yourself in Paul's position here. He was a Pharisee, a religious leader. He was one of the religious leaders. He was elite of those men. And he had been trained his whole life to believe that sin was something that he did, not something that he was. Sin was a physical problem, right? As long as I don't do those things. But it was God's law, faithfully, who taught him that it was in his heart. And let me just make this point, because we've made it a thousand times. You're shaking your head for one reason. Because we talk about the good, no good news all the time. And who doesn't like that phrase, gospel? Gospel means good news. But here's what we've always said. You can't have the good news unless you embrace the bad news. And the bad news is that the problem isn't somebody else's problem. And it isn't some little version of what someone has done to you. The problem resides in your heart, in your bones. It comes out of your life. And unless you get the bad news, that you're as corru corrupt as you possibly can be, according to God's standard of righteousness, you can't have his solution. If you want to just add a little bit of Jesus to your already messed up world, God says it doesn't come that way. The good news comes through the bad news. So we understand, first of all, that the law is really, really good because it reveals sin. Amen? Here's the second thing. Paul says the law revives sin. Verse 8. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. Do you see that word opportunity that he uses there? In verse 8, for sin, seizing the opportunity. That word is the, is the idea of a beachhead or, or the idea of a starting point for an expedition. 
So, so get what Paul is saying here. He's saying sin responds to the law that God gives as a starting point, an expedition into a whole bunch of sin I never even contemplated before. In, in other words, Paul says his sinful heart went off lusting as soon as God said don't lust. That's what happened. And that's what the law of God does. And we used the illustration last week of wet paint. Remember that? Signs, don't touch. Something happens. I don't know what it, where it comes from other than sin. It's just a weird thing we want to touch. Now, I don't have a very good memory. That's just a confession. I don't know if it was too many bumps of the head growing up, but whatever it is, I have a very bad memory. But it, this week I was trying to figure out how to describe this, and one popped in my mind, and it happened in 1966. So you know we're going back a ways, all right? My dad bought an album. The album was Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass, okay? Now, the 8 o'clock service just was all excited because they all knew Herb Albert and the Tijuana Brass. The, the, the album was called Whipped Cream and Other Delights, 1965, okay? Everybody's going, yeah, yeah. Okay. The picture on the front of the album, which I didn't know at seven years old, was a lady without clothes on dressed in whipped cream, okay? My dad came home with the album, and he, he taped carefully across the album cover a newspaper, like just a random newspaper. But he made the big mistake of going, now, boys, I've taped over this thing. Don't look. <laughs> Guess what I did? I had to see it. I had to see it. That's exactly what the law does. I was six years old. What do I care about naked women? Nothing. As soon as someone says, don't look, gotta have it. You see it? And that, doesn't, that isn't unique to a six-year-old. That's true of every man, woman, and child. As soon as God says, don't, we got to. It reveals sin. How about one maybe more obvious, uh, maybe a biblical illustration? God creates man, puts man in a perfect environment. There is total harmony with God. There is innocence in the garden. God gives one one instruction, not a whole bunch of instructions, not difficult instructions, one. See that tree? Don't eat that one. All the rest of it, knock your socks off. Have fun. Run around. Just don't eat that one thing, right? And what happened? As soon as God gives the law, the expedition into sin begins. Satan shows up and suggests that somehow God's law is unfair, and Adam and Eve go, you know what, that's probably true. And they question the goodness of God, they question the faithfulness of God, they question the consequences that God said would happen if they ate, and they questioned God and plunged every person who's ever lived into a consequence of sin. We are sinners because of that. And that little bitty problem residing in the hearts of even Adam and Eve used the law of God as an expedition into untold amount of sin and iniquity, Amen? That's what happened. Now, if you look at verse 8, the last half of verse 8, it almost sounds like Paul's blaming the law for his sin, but he's not. So let me just read this again. He says, apart from the law, sin lies dead. Paul is not suggesting that, that the law is responsible. What he's saying here is that where there isn't law, there isn't the full knowledge of what's wrong with me. There's something seriously wrong. In every person who's ever lived, until God gives the command, you don't know how deep it goes. You don't know how pervasive it is. 
You don't know what it's covering your entire life that affects every decision you ever make. God's law is simply to reveal it's a big problem, right? That's what he says. So we've seen that the, the law of God is good because it reveals sin. We've seen that the law of God is good because it revives sin. Here's the third thing. The law of God is good because it ruins sinners. It ruins sinners. Look at verse 9. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. This is Paul's uh, before and after picture. This is his selfie, okay, if to use a modern vernacular. This is Paul looking at his life before as a religious nut, apart from God's grace, climbing his own spiritual ladder and looking at God's law. And he simply says in, in verse 9, I was once alive apart from the law. Now, what he's saying here, it sounds almost like he was okay apart from the law of God. That's not what he's saying, even though he thought he was. All he's talking about was, I was managing my life externally. I was working on it. I was wrestling things to the mat, and there was a whole series of things I did and a whole series of things I didn't do. In fact, in Paul's mind, at one point, he was convinced that favor with God, salvation, and eternal life was for people like him who kept the law only to find out it's not true. I want you to see this. You'll be familiar with it. Turn to the right, Philippians chapter three. This is Paul's biography. This is Paul before and after, okay? Philippians chapter three, we're gonna pick it up kind of the middle of verse four through verse six. And he's talking about righteousness by faith, and this is what he says. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. That sounds arrogant, doesn't it? I mean, just to hear the apostle say that if anybody's going to climb some ladder, I'm better than others. And maybe he was. He says, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, Hebrews, to the law, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, what's it say? Blameless. This is Paul's before shot. If there is a human way to address the problem, I conformed the outer man. To such a degree, I'm okay with using the word blameless to describe myself. And then he says this. Skip down to verse 7. He bumped into Jesus. That's what he says. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss. The word better rendered is dung because of the surpassing worth of, the, of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and counted them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him not having a righteousness my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Here's what Paul did. He looked at his life before and said, listen, if there was a human way to describe me, I was bulletproof. But here's what I learned. I wasted my time. Because all of that other stuff was garbage compared to faith alone in Christ. God's standard is perfection. My external righteousness couldn't fix my problem. Jesus fixed my problem. So I, I am in my joy, reject all of my work before. I call it dung because knowing Christ is the surpassing worth of glory. Amen? That's what he says. 
So, do you remember? Do you, do you remember when you saw yourself clearly for the first time as who you really are through the lens of God's standard and law? Do you remember what it was like where you discovered that you didn't match up? You remember how that felt? I think it takes time to, to see it really. I think sometimes it takes years to see it clearly if you ever see how bad you are clearly. I think we're discovering all the time that it's far worse than we ever feared. And, I, and I've got a confession to make. I've been walking with Christ for 30 years and I'm far more worse off than I ever thought I was. And there's one thing that reveals that to me. My failure. My constant wandering heart. And you would think at 52 or something, I'd wake up and go, man, this is getting better. I feel better today about me. I, I don't. I look at what I should know or what I should do or how I should feel, and some days it's there and some days it's not. Do you think I should know better? I think I should. And, and I think I'm convinced that's what God does with all his kids, young or old. If you, you could be young here. You could be 28, and you live the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle, and you're scarred from head to toe, and you know, you know, gosh, I don't match up. And then there's the 50, 60, 70-year-old people who look at their life and they think things they shouldn't think and they do things they shouldn't do and they're absolutely convinced that they can't manage it. And it simply, it simply reveals that. It ruins us. So the conclusion, as Paul says here, of God's precious, beautiful, holy, and righteous law is that it ruins all of us. So we learn exactly what Jesus said. I have come to seek and save the lost and nobody else. Not another single person, anybody who thinks they just need an adjustment or an addition, nobody who thinks they need just a little bit of help or a little tweaking here or there, nobody like that gets Jesus. Only the people who know, I'm lost. And the law wrecks you to get you to the place of recognizing you're lost. So before you're, you can be found, you have to be in that position. That's what God's law does. Paul, in verse 10, says that he made a very familiar mistake, probably sounds familiar to us. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. He did what some of us do. He trusted in God's law to make him right, to give him eternal life, and all it could ever do was bring death and hell. It can't save. I, I suppose if I wanted to be really, really honest, I'd have to add one other way, because there is another way. Just be perfect. I mean, that's legitimately another way. I mean, you can take Christ and rest in his work and recognize your need and your inability, or, or just be perfect. Heart, soul, mind, and strength, every word, action, and deed, every motive of the heart all the time, never drop the ball your entire life, and you can have heaven. And you giggle because you know that's not possible. And that's Paul's point. You can't do it. You see why Paul uses such strong language when he's going after the law? Because the law instinctively makes us feel happy. Makes, it deceives us thinking that if I go that direction, that somehow God smiles on me more today than he did yesterday. That somehow I'm better off with God if I do or don't do a certain list of things. The law, all it can do is wreck us, not revive us. Paul says in verse 11, he talks about being deceived. Look at it. 
for sin, seizing the opportunity, an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, it killed me. Watch this. Sin and Paul heard God's law, just like it does to us. It heard God's law, and it lied to him, telling him that if you do these things, you're better off. And that's not the gospel. The outcome was the exact opposite of what he was shooting for. He was shooting for peace with God, but all it did was condemn him. All it did was make him realize that he was being killed by it. That's what he says in verse 11. So let's take a look at the big picture. God's law is good, and it's holy, and it's right, and it's true because it reveals law, uh, it reveals sin. It, re- it, it also revives sin, and it ruins sinners. But let me give you one last one as we're finishing. The law reflects sin. Verse 12. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. No, for we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. Paul's answer to the question he posed in verse 7 is answered most clearly right here. Is the law sin? He says, no. It is righteous, holy, and good. The problem is not God's law. The problem is the offender. I'm going to confess some stuff as a, as a preacher, okay? This is hard stuff to talk about. I, I really do wrestle with it. I sit in my little office with the lights down, and I go, well, how do I say this? Because it's not popular. And I want, I want to tell you why it's not popular, and maybe we can all kind of identify with my angst, okay? Um, because I say to you, bad person, if that's who you call yourself to be, you're sitting here with a, with a mom or a dad or a loved one or whatever, and you hear me talk about God's law, and you go, yeah, that's what I thought. That's what I thought. God is just about a list of things, and he commands a bunch of things, and everyone's a hypocrite, bah humbug, right? So you sit here, bad person, and you hear the law of God, and you check out because you know it's a joke. And good person, and I'm using these words pretty loosely, by the way, good person, church person, religious person, you hear these things about God's law, and he says it doesn't matter. You're not more beautiful because of it. And you've wasted or given yourself so much to trying to please God. You wake up worried about how God feels about you. And we're talking about the gospel. And I say to those who are sinners that you're messed up and jacked up and you need help. And I say to religious people, we are messed up and jacked up and we need help. You understand why this is difficult? You understand why it's not popular? Because you can't make anybody happy. But that's the gospel. You know, I, I wrestle with this all the time. I'm kind of a checkout artist when it comes to church culture. I don't enjoy it much. Um, but I hear about it. And if I were making one big assessment about the church, I think it's anemic because it's spending most of its time on another agenda other than God's agenda, trying to make people happy and return as opposed to reveal to them God's one and only way, grace through faith alone in Christ alone. So they won't talk about sin and they won't talk about sovereignty and they won't talk about God's commands and they won't talk about repentance and they won't talk about an exclusive narrow gospel that eliminates all other options. So they perpetrate their own agenda. But God's agenda, and I want you to get this. It's very, very simple. If you want to know what God's doing, here's what God's doing with sinners. He's declaring grace alone through the lens of his law. Do you understand? 
That's why we have to preach what God commands. You know why? Not so at the end of it you go, okay, today I'm gonna muster out there and work really hard at what God commands. No, because at the end of it you go, I'm screwed. I can't do this. I can't get there. Isn't that true? I'm watching your faces and I can see that you identify with what I just said. Let me, let me give you a tutorial of examples so that you can identify with what the scriptures say. In fact, Paul says it this way, in order that sin may be shown sin. The whole point of revealing the commands of God is to wreck us so that he can resurrect us. If I take you through a, just a sample of the Ten Commandments, let's see how we do. The very first commandment says in Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall have no other gods before me. How you doing? Like you'd say, well, I don't have a mantle at home and there's no golden calves in my backyard and there's no, there's no other gods that I know of that I'm pursuing, but I think maybe God defines it a little bit more narrow than you do. John Stott described it this way. He says, it's not necessary to worship the sun or the moon or the stars to break this law. We break it whenever we give it to something or someone other than God himself the first place in our thoughts and our affections. It may be some engrossing sport, absorbing hobby, or selfish ambition. Or it may be someone whom we idolize. We may worship a god of gold and silver in the form of safe investments and a healthy bank balance. Or a god of wood and stone in the form of property or possessions. Sin is, sin is fundamentally the exaltation of self at the expense of God. What some, someone wrote of the Englishman is true of every man. He's a self-made man who worships his creator. How you doing? So all you got to do to keep the first commandment is to love him with your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Never quit. Ever quit. All you have to do is have him be first place in all of your loves and affections, goals, and actions. Who can do this? Who? Nobody. Nobody can do it. The conclusion is Jesus. Jesus can. Jesus did. Jesus gave us that perfection. Amen? Do you understand why this whole book from cover to cover isn't just a random selection of stories, but it's a redemptive story addressing sin and God's solution, who is Christ? Every commandment reveals Jesus. Every story talks about him as Savior. Amen? That's what it says. Let's try on another one for size. See how this works. The second commandment. You shall not make for yourselves carved images or, or likeness of anything that's in heaven above or that is on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the, under the earth, Exodus 20, verse 4. So the first commandment deals with the object of our worship. That's God. The second commandment confronts the tendency to worship with inadequate things. So let's try this on for size. How about when we picture God in ways that aren't accurate, which is classically Christian? Church for a long time has defined God in pictures that aren't true of him, like the benevolent grandpa God. You know, he's got pockets full of coins, and you just tug on his shirt, and hey, hey, yeah, no problem. Or the God in the box. You know, this is the God that you control, that you're more sovereign than him, and he'll get aligned with your goals, you know. Or the co-pilot God. Like, you're, you're really flying this ship, and God comes alongside and just rubber stamps what you do. Or the angry God, the one who just flies off the handle and wants to crush us at every moment, or the lucky rabbit's foot God, you know that one? The one that if, you know, 
if I do this and don't do that, if I rub it just the right way, he's got to respond, right? Now, you would never write these down. This is not in your journal. This comes out of your faith actions. You feel these things, and those things, according to Scripture, are breaking the second commandment. Or possibly when you come to church and you worship without gauging your hearts or minds. How common is that? You find yourself wandering. We're talking about God, for crying out loud. You should be on the edge of your seats, but your mind wanders. We're singing about the greatness of God and his Savior, Jesus. We're not that interested. Who can do this? I, I sit through four of these services every Sunday. I can't do this. Can you? You get the point? The point of it is Jesus can. It's all about Jesus. What, what, about, what about the third commandment? Shall not take the name of the Lord in vain, Exodus 27. Oh, good, good. I don't, I don't curse God. I'm, I'm safe. I'm safe here. Well, I don't think so. How about the day you confessed him as Lord, every day you don't live with him as Lord is like taking the Lord's name in vain. You said, you're the Lord of my life. I follow you. Everything lines up with you. And then you know those days. You know the pressure comes and somebody makes life miserable for you and you just say, well, not today, God. Sit this one out. I'm Lord in this one. <laughs> who can keep this? Who, who can do this thing? Only Jesus. Maybe you'd sit here and go, well, maybe I don't do so good with the specifics about God. Let's, let's talk about these commandments that apply to people. Because I do people better than I do holy. So let's just look at a few of those. Because the Ten Commandments are kind of divided between a God focus and how we treat others. So let's just pick two because I don't know if we can handle much more. <laughs> we got this one, right? You should not murder. We got that, right? I've never killed anybody recently. And yet Jesus said, if you're angry with your brother, you're a murderer. Who can do this? You know, the, this happens to all, I, I, think I, I think I have a gift in this sin. I can get angry. By this definition that Christ gives, every time we neglect someone, every time we gossip or slander about someone, every time we keep score about someone's offenses, we are murdering. Who can keep this? Can you? To the perfection that God requires? No. And so the conclusion is what? Jesus. It's Jesus. One more. Do not commit adultery. And yet Jesus said, if you look with lust, you're guilty. Guys, you want me to stop? And by the way, this is not unique to men. It's true of women the biblical definition of this idea of lusting is any abuse, any abuse of God's beautiful gift of marriage, which includes flirting or thoughts or selfish demands of marriage or, or fantasies or whatever, pornography, it's all there. Who can do this? It's okay, you can tell me. Who can do this? Jesus. Not you and not me. And that's why Paul, when he gets to chapter 7, he's trying to crush law as a way to climb to God. Because if you see the law as only a curse that buries you and sends you to hell, then you'll receive what God has freely done in Christ for you by faith. Amen? That's your only shot. That's my only shot. That's why the gospel is so beautiful and it superabounds over all other options men have because it's the only way to fix the problem. Jesus. 
every command of God doing what he intended it to do, not to raise us, but to wreck us. Do you see? To point to Jesus. God's law is awesome and it's good and it's righteous because it makes us so miserable in our present condition that we want something better and that, that better has a name. It's Christ. And so he says, Jesus died for us. He fulfilled the law for us. He lives for us so that we can go free. Do you understand how free you are? You'd be smiling like crazy if you understood what I just said. Do you understand how free you are? Free from the law? Free from judgment? Free from condemnation? Free from fear? You're loved by God. That's why David says in Psalm 19, he says, uh, the law is good and it's perfect. You know why? Because it revives the soul. Not the way you probably first read it. Like if I do it, it revives the soul. No, it wrecks you so that he can revive the soul. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. God, we need your help to get this to get it to the depth of our being, to understand what Jesus died to give us, the freedom that we're supposed to walk in. God, help us. I know there are some in here who think their sin is greater than your grace. Help them see it. God, to those who are convinced that their righteousness is not in need of your grace, help them. God, crush us to revive us so that at the end of it all, we might praise your name. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Take care, everybody. We'll see you next week.